Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Jamie Ford at Scott County Library, Prior Lake. Book club favorite Jamie Ford made waves in 2009 with the publication of Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. Set in Seattle against the backdrop of Japanese-American internment during World War II, Ford's historical fiction debut follows the unlikely but lasting friendship between a Chinese-American boy and Japanese-American girl. Kirkus Reviews commended it, a timely tale that not only reminds readers of a shameful episode in American history, but cautions us to examine the present and take heed we don't repeat those injustices. Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet became a mainstay on the New York Times bestseller list for two full years and garnered Ford a number of honors, including the 2010 Asian Pacific American Award for Literature. It has been translated into an astounding 34 languages to date. Ford's sophomore novel, The Songs of Willow Frost in 2013, revisits the author's favorite setting at the height of the Great Depression. Wow, this is awesome. Thank you for being here. Um, I have to ask, because I'm just curious, who's read Hotel in the Corner of Bitter and Sweet? Oh, holy cow, okay, all right. Um, on to Q&A, no, um, wow. Since so many of you have, have, have read it, and I'm gonna talk about really the backstory of that book, but since so many have already read it, I, I tend to give people the update on that book because books I find are like my children in that despite my, my best intentions, they just go out into the world and they do whatever, the, you know, they're, whatever they're gonna do. And Hotel, is like my child and it's gone out into the world and it's, it's done things that I, I did not imagine it would do. And so I, I do like to update people on like, like how's that book doing? Um, and two things that were really interesting about hotels is it became the number one book in Norway for four months, which is really absurd. It's a little weird. Like at no time was I writing that book and just thinking, oh yeah, this is gonna rock Oslo, you know? <laughs> like, Ludafis for everybody. Um, it was so crazy, and, and, and it was just, I, mean, I, was, I was pleased, but I was also baffled, and, and uh, the largest daily newspaper in Oslo called me, and, and they were running an article, and they, they asked me, like, what do you attribute 
your success in Norway. And I was just like, a good translator. Like I, they, they could put vampires in it and I don't read Norwegian. I would never know. So um, that was one remarkable thing. The other remarkable thing that happened is that Hotel on the Corner Bitter and Sweet is read in a lot of schools now. It's actually required reading in Washington State. I read in a lot of high schools, um, some colleges, some intrepid middle schools. Um, and because it's read in high schools, you know, I, I have this, this moment, this reckoning, where I realize that I've, I've grown up and I've become somebody's homework. And it's, <laughs> I feel really weird about that. And, and I, it happened very organically. I didn't, I didn't know this was gonna happen. I wasn't planning for it. It just, it happened on its own. And, and the way it happened, as far as I can gather, is that hotel appeared on a lot of summer reading lists. And then it, it kind of got traction. Then it found its way into you know, certain schools. But summer reading lists are, are interesting because I, you know, I have a house full of teenagers and I know what teenagers do with their summer reading lists. It's you know, the last day of school, the list goes in their backpack, the backpack goes in the corner of the room and then maybe like a week before school is supposed to start, they get out their phones and they text their friends like, what was I supposed to read? And then they go to sparknotes.com <laughs> and I'm not there. Hotel is not on Sparknotes, but I am on social media and I am on the internet and I, I'm, I'm pretty easy to track down. And so I would start getting these emails from high school students. Late August, I get 20 a day from students. And they say these wonderful things like, uh, Mr. Ford, I love your book. Motel on the Corner of Sweet and Sour is so awesome. Uh, if you could just answer these 12 questions for me, I'd appreciate it. Um, <laughs> and I, I actually, I, I do, I don't give them the answers, but I, I do respond to all of them, um, which, you know, it's, it's, it's fun and it's delightsome. But then my daughter had to read my book in high school and she was so embarrassed. <laughs> It's, it's like if your dad is the vice principal and he's just always there and, and she, you know, she got through it. She soldiered on. She liked the book. Um, she, did, she did ask, how much of this did you write? <laughs> it's a wonderful thing for your child to ask. Um, and after that, she actually went onto Twitter and she found tweets from teenagers who were basically chattering back and forth about my book. And she had to share those with me. So I'm gonna share some of them with you. Um, these are actual tweets from actual high school students. Um, this is from Mariah Cobb. And Mariah tweets, nobody read Hotel on the Corner Bitter and Sweet. It will slowly tear your heart out and you'll cry your eyes out. Hashtag stupid English class. <laughs> So that's awesome. Uh, this is from McKenna. And McKenna tweets, Hotel on the Corner Bitter and Sweet is actually so depressing. I can't read this. Hashtag, this is why I don't read. So. <laughs> Sorry, McKenna. Um, and this is great. This is from Nicholas Reed. And it's, it's all in caps. So he's very excited and animated. 
And Nicholas tweets, who has a study guide for hotel on the corner, bitter and sweet? Sparknotes didn't have it. Hashtag emergency. <laughs> okay, this is, this is from, from Margaret, oh, Morgan Gaccioni. And Morgan tweets, anyone want to give a good summary for hotel on the corner, bitter and sweet? I'm willing to pay in cash. So, it's a whole black market now about my book. Uh, this is from uh, Alana, whose Twitter handle is Banana Alana. That's kind of cute. And uh, Alana tweets, I would rather read Animal Farm every day of my whole life than effing read Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. <laughs> kind of feel that one. And my, my last one, which is, I, this is my favorite. This is from Emma. And Emma tweets, more like Hotel on the Corner of This Book Sucks Boulevard. <laughs> but, but what they don't realize is I'm fueled creatively by the angst of teenagers, so it's, it's okay. Um, when they get a pimple on prom night, I get stronger. It's, it's good. Um, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm sharing some of the salacious ones with you, but I, I get just as many, if not more. And I love it when I can see the photo on Twitter and I see it and it's a boy and he's got his shoulder pads on so I know he's you know he's just made varsity I would not expect that to be my core reading audience and someone like that his, his name was Jake and Jake tweeted this is the first book I was forced to read that I actually loved <laughs> and that's you know it's great being on the New York Times bestseller list but if you can be I, I call them uh, Certain type of books, I call them our, our, our gateway drugs to reading, or a gateway book. And, and all of us, no matter what our age, at some point in our life, we, if we find ourselves with a love of reading, there was a book that kind of, you read at a certain point in your life and you thought, this book was written just for me. This makes sense now. And if I can be that gateway drug book for Jake or Tom or Billy or Susan, that's wonderful. So. Um, Thank you for letting me share those with you. Um, this is awesome. This is, this is not my normal authorly event. Um, thank you for being here. My, my normal authorly event is truly that, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm at a bookstore usually on a Monday night about seven, going head to head with Dancing with the Stars. Um, <laughs> and I, I say that in jest, but I did a book event a couple years ago in Washington, D.C. at a wonderful independent bookstore called Politics and Prose. And I'm rolling into town and I have a cousin who works and lives in the D.C. area. And so I emailed him and I said, please come out to the bookstore, you know, please support the family. And he emails me back and said, I'd love to be there, but tonight Tom DeLay is dancing the cha-cha. Um, <laughs> this is my, my, my humbling moment from the road. Um, of which there, there's been several, and, and since there's so many of us here, I, I have to share this with you because I'm, I'm always curious. Um, and this pertains to radio interviews. And as an author, I do a lot of interviews. I do television and print, but I, I do a ton of radio. And radio, I, I do it because it's, it's so easy. I do it on my cell phone, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I, can, I can be in Madison, Wisconsin, and I'll be on the air live in Lexington, Kentucky. But what's interesting about those interviews is that they are recorded live and then they're disseminated, kind of like this podcast is. And so 
I'll get emails from readers and they'll say things like, I love the interview you did in Topeka. And I'm like, I've never been to Topeka. And it was because of one of those interviews. But I did an interview one time and I was in, I was in Portland, Oregon. And I was, I was on my trusty cell phone and I was on the air live. And there was this tremendous moment of live radio that went just like this. Housekeeping. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had the thing hanging on the door, which I've learned is strictly advisory. There's no enforcement of that thing. And it's happened to me twice now. So if you happen to be listening to your local NPR affiliate and you hear this interview where this woman brings me fresh towels, I'm not having a diva moment. That's it's just that interview. Um, and, it, and a peculiar thing about interviews is that I get asked a, a repetition of questions about hotel in the corner of Bitter and Sweet. And part of that is an artifact of having a, a publicist who sends out a press kit and, and has like topics you should, you know, discuss. And, and we'll do Q&A and I'm happy to talk about anything. But the questions are always, I, I call them the, the brick and mortar questions. They're the, the quantitative questions where they're about the Japanese internment or they're about race relations between Chinese and Japanese Americans or Occasionally, they'll be about the Seattle jazz scene or something like that. And, and those are great. I'm, I'm happy to, to, to talk about any of that. But I get a lot of emails from readers. And the commentary from readers is different than the commentary I get in an interview. The commentary from readers tends to be the qualitative stuff about the book, the emotional stuff, the, um, the love story about the book um, and how people are affected by it. I, I, get, I, get, I get emails and they say things like, you made me cry, you know, I'm, I'm still crying, I'm on Prozac, I can't stop crying, you know, that, it's that kind of stuff. And I, and I love that. I love seeing readers partake of the emotional currency that's spent in the book. And, and I, I appreciate that because I'm still a reader myself and I, I still recall those moments where I would be 400 pages into a 600 page book on a Sunday night and it's like midnight and I'm just just thinking I'm calling in sick tomorrow because I gotta finish this book and I I love that and because I never get asked about the love story in an interview I'm gonna talk about the love story a little bit and love stories are these weird peculiar creatures and and by that I mean if if, if we were all at your local movie theater and we were all watching you know, a love story, a tearjerker type of movie, when the lights come on, I always like to look around at the audience and see how people react. And I find that two distinct crowds emerge. You have the one group that, you know, they're, they're fishing in their purse for Kleenex and their mascara is running and you know they really were affected by the movie and then you see the other group that's just kind of looking bewildered like that was a waste of ten dollars you know <laughs> where was the gun battle where was the asteroid collision and I knew at a very young age where where I fell on that emotional Richter scale not just as an author but as a person and I knew from a 
painfully, embarrassingly young age, and I was probably nine years old, like a third grader. And at the time, I was living in this cute little town of Ashland, Oregon. It's this great little theater town. But if, if, if you happen to be growing up in Ashland, Oregon in the late 60s, early 70s, we were blessed or cursed to only have one television channel. You know, there was no cable that had reached us yet. You know, our bunny ears on top couldn't pick up anything else. And so, because we only had one channel, I just watched whatever's on as a little kid. And so I watched some weird television sometimes. And I watched this movie as a little kid that really informed the kind of storyteller I would later become. And it was, a, it was your typical ABC movie of the week. It was this movie called James at 15. Does anyone remember that movie? Okay. There's one person, all right. <laughs> My people are here. <laughs> we are among you. James at 15, critically acclaimed drama, which became a critically acclaimed series, um, which was promptly knocked off the air by you know, Dukes of Hazard or whatever, because 70s were not a high point in our culture for drama. But James at 15 was about a young boy living in Oregon. I'm living in Oregon, so I'm kind of interested. His name is James. My given name is James. So I'm, I'm, there's a little bit of buy-in. And James at 15 was about this young boy who was pining away for this impossible girl. And he gets the girl in a very benign 70s kind of way. This is not the Jersey Shore. It's not the real housewives of Prior Lake. You know, it's a very simple, sublime love story. But James at 15 didn't end with him getting the girl. It actually ended with James and his family moving away. They packed up and moved to Boston. And so they had the U-Haul the packed and James is in the back of the, the, the all-American wood panel station wagon that we all used to drive. And there's this ending scene where he's waving goodbye to his sweetheart who's on the corner and she's waving back. And they just drove away. And there was this very sad, melancholic piano music and the credits just started rolling. And I remember watching this as a third grader and just thinking, oh, love sucks. This is awful. I was, it was, I was so caught up in these characters. And it was, this was the first time I'd ever seen a complicated interpersonal relationship that didn't come from Disney. You know, the, the, the nutty professor was about as deep as I went. And there's nothing wrong with those movies. But I was, I was stunned by the emotional spectrum at that age. And I was moved to tears, like real tears streaming down my face. And I remember my dad sitting next to me in his easy chair. And I'm a dad, there's some gentlemen here. I'm sure there's some other dads in the room. Every dad has what I call the dad list. And I picture my dad just regarding his young son, just ball at this cheesy movie of the week and taking out his imaginary dad list and just thinking, football scholarship, no. <laughs> Basketball, no. Um, here it would be hockey, no. Um, but as a result, not just of that night, but a lot of nights like that, my dad actually encouraged me to go into the arts.
which is kind of a noble undertaking for a parent. And I always like to say, you know, I, I scored a writer's touchdown, Dad. Um, but the next day, I go back to school. And everyone at school is calling me James at 15. Hey, it's James at 15. Because we all saw the same show, right? We only had one channel. Everyone saw it. They all hated it. And I loved it. And in a just, just a textbook moment of peer pressure collapse, I, I tucked the memory of James at 15 into the attic of my mind. I didn't think about that show literally for decades until I was fumbling around with this thing called fiction, when I was trying to figure out how to be a writer and what to write about. And when, when you're a writer, any kind of writer, if you write poetry or song lyrics or screenplays, whatever you write, it's like being given a box of a million crayons. And you have to choose some different colors and just try them out. And, and I, was, I was at that point in my life where I'm trying out stuff. And I'm half Chinese on my dad's side, but I had never, I had never written anything with multicultural characters. I just didn't think anybody would care, let alone the entire country of Norway. Um, <laughs> hadn't planned on that. So you know, I didn't go there. And I, I love history. I read a lot of nonfiction. And I, I didn't, you know, I really thought history was the realm of academia. And so I didn't, I didn't go there. And as you'll, you'll come to realize, I, I do have a deep abiding weakness for love stories. But I, but I didn't go there. But where I did go with my, my then fiance, now wife, is we went to one of those weekends for newly engaged couples, which I've later learned that's kind of a bizarre social experiment. Because <laughs> you, you walk in and you're kind of like judging everybody else, you know. And we, we, we went and we were way older than everybody else in the room. Everyone else was like right out of college or still in college. They all thought we were the host couple. Like, where do we sit? I'm like, slow down. I'm in love too, Junior. You know, <laughs> pump the brakes. Um, and, and what they did is they had us stand up and tell the, the Cliff's Notes version of how we first met. And so it went around the room. And this sterling young gentleman, this is absolutely true, he stands up, he turns to his beloved and he says, and I quote, well, she, I woke up and she had my t-shirt on, I figured I better ask what her name was. <laughs> oh, right, so romantic. Oh. Like, it's like the heavens parted and doves flew. Um, it, it goes around the room and everyone's first date, their first meeting, it was like spring break or it was like, you know, a frat party or jello shooters were involved and it came around to me and I had to stand up in front of all of these kids, this post-collegiate coupling experiment and, and confess to them that I met my wife at that hotbed of swinging singles activity known as the public library. <laughs> oh, here we are. Um, and that was their reaction too, was this patina of nervous laughter, like, haha, no, really, where'd you meet her? It was just the library. It wasn't singles night at the library. It wasn't wet t-shirt night at the library. I wasn't hanging out in the 300 section. And for those of you that don't remember your Dewey Decimal System, the 300s are human sexuality. It was just the public library. And a year later, I proposed in a bookstore. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
But see, that's when I knew. I wasn't James at 15. I was James at 40. And I was this weird, precocious kid, and I grew up to be a weird, precocious adult, but it really freed me up to write what I wanted to write about, which was something multicultural and historical and, yes, a love story. And, and, so, and so I wrote a short story with the characters of Henry and Keiko and Sheldon, and I had some feedback that was very positive and encouraging. And I went home and I unplugged my television and I wrote my brains out. And I wrote this book, which brought me here today. And it's a story of a young boy, a young Chinese-American boy named Henry. And after the bombings of Pearl Harbor, his parents give him a button to wear that reads, I am Chinese, and they send him to uh, a private school hoping to make him more American. And there he meets Keiko, a young Japanese-American girl, and her parents have sent her there for identical reasons. And together they form this very simple affection. And for those of you that have read the book or, or have a, a historical appreciation of the Japanese internment, we know that shortly after Keiko, Keiko's family, the entire Japanese-American community, ultimately 120,000 Japanese-Americans and nationals are going to be rounded up and sent to internment camps for their protection, even though the machine guns point in and, and not out. And so Henry's going to lose Keiko at some point. And it's also the story of Henry as an older gentleman, and he's in his 50s, and he's a widower, and he's a man just living with his lament and he's walking down the street in Chinatown, in Seattle, in the 80s, what used to be Japantown, and he passes a hotel that has changed owners, and the new owner is bringing up stuff out of the basement, and he learns that 37 Japanese-American families stored their belongings there as they were taken to camp, and those belongings remained there decades later. And as these things are coming up out of the basement, he sees something that he's pretty sure belonged to Keiko. And so it, it forces him to reconcile the past and the present, to think about the things he did, the things he didn't do, the things he said, and all the things he left unspoken about that time. And so for those of you that haven't read the book, I'll kind of stop right there. I don't want to give any spoilers. Um, I did an event in Spokane, Washington one time, and during Q&A, a woman stood up and in the body of her question gave away the entire ending of the book, <laughs> which is awesome when that happens. Um, I thought the book club ladies around her were just going to rise up and just start beating her with their purses, so I don't want that to happen. Um, but what I would love to do is, does someone have a copy of Hotel I can borrow? I see one right there. Can I borrow that? Contrary to popular belief, authors don't like walk around like, hey, I'd like to read you or something. <laughs> so thank you for, thank you for sharing. Um, I'm just going to read a couple pages, and then, and then we'll talk. And when it comes to, when it comes to author readings, I'm, I'm literally going to read a page and a half. Um, I always keep it really short. Um, and I do that for two, for two reasons. One, I did a, a book event in Florida one time, and I was about to read 
and a, a lovely cotton-haired lady in the far back stood up and yelled, we already know how to read. And that's awesome when that happens. Um, and I look forward to the day when, and we're all gonna get there, to where we can say anything we want under any social circumstance, and it's cool. So we all will arrive at that destination. Um, and I kind of look forward to it. Um, the other reason that I read, and I, I keep it really short, um, in addition to I just want to save time for questions, and yeah, that's, that's, the dialogue is so much, so much fun for me, but I have this crazy theory um, slash paranoia that because we were all read to as children at bedtime, <laughs> you, know, you know where I'm going with this. I, I have this fear that I'm going to look up one day and just be like, <laughs> and I, I just don't want to do that to you. I do not. So. I won't go there. Um, the book is Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. I do think there are equal measures of both, but this is some of the bitter, and I should, I should preface it as such. This is about 70 pages into the book. We've met Henry, we've met Keiko, they've met each other, but what's happened shortly after the bombings of Pearl Harbor is the FBI have made raids into Japantown, and they've confiscated cameras, radio equipment, and they're arresting Japanese Americans who they suspect are likely candidates for spying and espionage. Um, school teachers were, were, because they spoke both languages fluently, were specifically targeted. And so Henry goes to school the next day and Keiko's missing. And he knows these raids have gone on. So fearing for the safety of his friend, he cuts class, he runs outside, and he sees smoke billowing over the rooftops in the direction of Japantown. And that's where we jump into this part of the story. In the heart of Japantown, Henry found the Ochi Photography Studio once again. He couldn't miss the young proprietor who stood outside on a milk crate looking through a large camera mounted on a wooden tripod. He was shooting in an alley that ran in the same direction as Maynard Avenue, where Henry saw the source of the fires. They weren't Japanese homes or businesses as he'd feared. There were large burning barrels and garbage cans set ablaze in the alley, fire and smoke pluming up and over the apartment buildings on either side. Why are you taking pictures of garbage fires? Henry asked, not sure if the photographer recognized him. The man looked through Henry, then his eyes blinked as he seemed to remember that it must have been the button Henry wore. The photographer turned back to his camera, his hands shaking. They're not burning garbage. Henry stood at the tee where the alley met the street, next to the photographer on his milk crate with his camera and his flashbulbs. Looking down the alley, he could see people coming and going from the apartment buildings, throwing things into the burning barrels. A woman yelled out of a third-story window to a man below and threw down a plum-colored kimono that looped and swirled, settling like falling snow on the dirty slug trail pavement of the alley. The man below scooped it up, regarded it for a moment, hesitated, and then threw it on the fire. The silky fabric lit and burning pieces floated out of the heat like butterflies whose wings caught flame, fluttering on the draft, flickering out and raining down as black ashy dust. An old woman brushed by Henry with an armload of papers, throwing them into the fire and they made a whooshing sound and Henry felt the rush of heat on his cheeks and stepped back. Even from a distance he could see there were scrolls, artwork written and drawn by hand, large Japanese characters disappearing into the heart of the fire. Why are they doing this? Henry asked, not fully understanding what he was seeing. 
They arrested more people last night. Japanese all over the city, all over Puget Sound, all over the state maybe. The photographer told him, people are getting rid of anything that might connect them to the war with Japan. Letters, clothing, it all must go, too dangerous to keep. Even old photos, people are burning photos of their parents and of their families. Henry watched an old man wearily place a neatly folded Japanese flag into the nearest burning barrel, saluting it as it burned. The photographer snapped the shutter on his camera, capturing the scene. I burned all my old photos last night. He turned to Henry, the tripod shaking as he held it. With his other hand, he wiped his mouth with a handkerchief. I burned my own wedding photos. Henry's eyes stung as they filled with smoke and soot, and he heard a woman yelling something in Japanese somewhere in the distance, and it sounded more like crying. We had a traditional wedding right here in Nihonmachi. Then we took our photos at the Washington Park Arboretum in front of the magnolias and the rock roses. We wore kimonos and Shinto dressing that had been in my family for three generations. The photographer looked haunted by the scene in front of him, haunted by the destruction of touchable, tangible reminders of life. I burned it all. Henry had seen all he could take. Turning, he ran home, still tasting the smoke. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, thanks. I, I like to read that scene because it's short, but it also encapsulates the fiction and the non-fiction. I grew up in Seattle, so I had an institutional memory of the Japanese internment that was very wide, but not very deep. And it wasn't until I was reading journals um, provided by the Dinsho Foundation where people talked about burning their, their family photos, um, anything that would connect them for fear of being not just incarcerated, but deported to a country that they weren't born in where they would be regarded as an enemy in that country. And so it, it was one of those moments that I realized I was writing about something that is relevant and is, uh, I, 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 I had a new reverence for it. If I was to write a book about the Japanese, I mean about the, the French Revolution, none of us have a, you know, a, a father, a mother, a grandmother who experienced that firsthand. It's, it's so far off in the distance. But with the Japanese internment, um, you know, I was, I was writing about people's first-hand experiences who are still with us. And so um, it changed how I, I went about my research. It changed how I went about telling the story. Um, and it changed how I, I go about, um, you know, my life now. I, I, I visit schools to talk about this. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Jamie Ford and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how fluent Ford is in speaking Chinese. Um, I am so fluent, my answer will be chi sai, which is Japanese. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm probably, I, my dad spoke Cantonese fluently. Uh, he went to Chinese school after public school to learn uh, city Cantonese because um, he had such a, my family had such a, even though he was born here, my grandfather was born here, people of his generation had a very thick accent. It's the, the Chinese version of like being from Appalachia some, someplace. Um, 
so he spoke it beautifully, um, and I speak it like a toddler. Um, I, I really don't speak hardly anything. You know, I always grew up calling my grandparents yin yin and yay yay, and I can answer the phone, and I can, I can address my elders in a certain way, and I can I know when they're saying certain things, but conversant is it, it's kind of beyond me. And it was my dad had the language really forced upon him as a child, and then with my generation, he didn't want me to learn it. He wanted me to learn only English, um, and I ended up taking four years of German, which does me no good at family <laughs> get-togethers, I assure you. Um, but yeah, I, I wish I spoke it. Um, and even now, it's, it's hard to find someone to teach Cantonese, because um, you know, Mandarin is, is kind of the norm. Our next question is what brought Jamie Ford to Montana? Before Montana, I lived in Hawaii for almost six years, and I really just wanted to get back to the mainland. And I was looking at Washington, where my family is, or Oregon. I wasn't thinking as, as far afield as Montana, but I was offered a, a really good job at the time. I was recruited away. I, in Hawaii, I did a lot of work with Hawaii tourism, and I was recruited to work on Montana tourism. But in the back of my mind, I really wanted to be a writer. And I, I knew if I could go someplace like Montana and live in a smaller town, where I live is a town of about 50,000 people, um, not only would I have a better quality of life, in my opinion, for my children, but I would um, have more time to write. And now I write, I've written full time for seven, eight years now. Um, so it kind of worked out, but that's what brought me to Montana. But I, I, I do, I love Montana. I get to, you know, I'm, I'm in Seattle a lot, almost every month. So it's like I never left. All my family's still there, but, um, but Montana is home. This question is if there is a possibility for Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet to be adapted into a film. Hotel was turned into a stage play, which had a really successful run in Seattle, and it also ran for a little bit in California. It's been optioned for a stage musical, which um, is an interesting process. Um, there's supposed to be a, the first uh, reading, I guess, at Northwestern University this year, like in June, um, in Chicago. Again, it's a long shot. And we're like, we're like this close on the film option. Um, I just saw, right now, I've met with the producer, we've agreed to everything in principle, and now it's entertainment lawyers going back and forth over, um, there's, a, there's a short contract, which is probably 10 pages, and this is what they're going over. And they've been going over it for eight months. And then after that, it's a long contract, which is like 90 pages. So. Eventually we'll get there. Um, I've had lots of interesting offers and it's... Dealing with Hollywood, it's like selling your baby to the circus, you know, and, and I just had to wait till I found the right adoptive home. And I really like this producer um, and, his, and her partner. I really like them, I trust them. Um, I like their financing apparatus. It seems reasonable. It's still a super long shot once it gets optioned. So we've agreed in principle. We, I haven't announced anything because we haven't signed it. Um, and I, I trust my, I have a, a film agent and a uh, creative rights attorney in LA. And I, I just defer to them to kind of ping pong back and forth. It seems a little excessive to me because I'm just like, I just want a deal and so I can just, so I can give you a, a complete answer and just say yes. <laughs> um, but uh, we're really close to being optioned and then who knows after that, but that's the first step.
This audience member asks about Ford's musical background and the role jazz plays in this novel. <laughs> My musical background, um, I don't really have a deep musical background. Um, I, it's more of, you know, I fumbled around with a couple of instruments and shameless karaoke singing. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm, jazz permeates the book. I'm more of a blues guy, to be honest. Um, Jazz is more of like my son, and my dad was really into jazz. Um, although I just bought some Mel Torme on vinyl, so I may be giving away more of myself than I realize. Um, I put the jazz in the book because it, it was so representative of what was there. And if I left it out, it would not be true to the neighborhood. And so the, at the height of, of Seattle's jazz scene on South Jackson, which runs right through Chinatown, there were 38 jazz clubs. 38, and now there's, there's zero, you know, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of gone away. Um, but it was just such a, I love the arts because the arts bring people of different persuasions, ethnicities, uh, 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 economic background, they, they bring people together. And I, I think that's kind of the magic of, of the arts. And, and it certainly was true of the jazz in Seattle at the time. It's kind of the one thing that everyone came together to appreciate, and that's why it's there. Um, there, was a, there was a, I describe a kind of a hole in the wall record store called Bud's Jazz Records, and it, there was a real Bud's Jazz Records, and I loved that place. Even though I wasn't like really into jazz, I just appreciated that it existed. Like I could go in this little basement downtown, and they'd be playing Nina Simone, and. It was just really cool. It was cooler than I was, and I wanted to be that cool, you know? <laughs> so I hope it's some of it rub off of me. And when we did some publicity shots when the book first came out, um, Random House sent me to Seattle with a photographer to shoot some of the locations. And we walked into Bud's Jazz Records, which unfortunately is closed now. And I walked in, and Bud just said, he saw me come in with a camera and, and an assistant, and, and he's like, is this for good or for evil? <laughs> and I said, it's for good. He's like, okay. Go, go about your business. <laughs> I was like, that was just cool. I just love that. This question is what Jamie Ford's research process is like. Yeah, I like research. So I, I, I kind of went all in. I joined the Dinsho Foundation, which records the oral history of the Japanese internment. So they have probably 400 interviews, recorded interviews, as well as uh, books and journals and things like that. Um, I did a lot of research at the Wing Luke Asian Museum, which is in Seattle, um, which now I ended up on the board of the Wigmook Asian Museum. <laughs> so that kind of worked out in a number of ways. Um, lots of you know nonfiction books, but ultimately I had to go to the Panama Hotel because it is a real place, and the belongings of those Japanese families still reside there to this day. They're still there, and at the time, like now I can hold up a book. And people in Seattle know me, so I can go to any museum and they let me go into the basement and go into the archives. Back then, I was just a crazy person. Like, I'm a writer, I've not published, but can I please bug you? Um, I, I wanted to go into the basement of the hotel and the owner kind of blew me off, blew me off. Finally, I flew out to Seattle. I sat in the tea room all day. And she just kind of kept going back and forth. Finally, you know, I wouldn't leave. And she's like, okay, what do you want? Like, well, I really want to go in the basement. And she's like, well, we do tours, but a minimum of eight people for a tour. 
So I paid for eight. And, and I went on the tour by myself. And then she knew I was kind of, I, I really was after this story. And we spent three hours in the basement talking about the belongings. And then Jan, the owner, has become a friend. And we probably talk every month now. She gives me the update on the latest book club from Italy or something that has wandered into the hotel. Another audience member asked Ford about a particular phrase in his book and inquires about the accuracy of its translation. I have a, a greeting that's in the book that's delivered to Henry from Sheldon, and it is definitely not an accurate translation. And I, and I, I kind of knew it, like, but I like the rhythm of, of, how it, um, of how it sounds. And like if, if you were to, if you knew just a few phrases in uh, Inupiat, uh, Eskimo language, and you were going to tell a friend, there's a good chance you might not be translating it correctly. And I kind of just, I blame Sheldon <laughs> for the mistranslation. <laughs> but I just kept it. But I, but, I, but I am aware that it is, it is not quite accurate. It's, a, it's, it's not what Sheldon says, because Sheldon kind of amps it up a little bit. Um, but it's a greeting that's a, a greeting that's not a formal greeting. So it's a greeting between two people that are familiar. And so that's why I used it, because it, it ends up at another point in the book. This question is why Ford decided not to include the events of the atomic bomb in his story. At the time, you know, it, I, I didn't put a lot of thought into this, but the thought that I did put in was that, and I could probably could have interviewed people from the time period, um, I wasn't sure if we knew how severe the atomic bomb was as a public as the pop, general populace. We live now through the lens of our history books and we know how devastating it was. But we had firebombed most of the major cities in Japan already, just burned them to the ground. And I wasn't sure if this big weapon without people actually seeing footage would consider it a major like earth shattering thing. People who had been in the desert and were part of the Manhattan Project obviously knew, but I'm not, I wasn't sure if the population um, knew enough about that. And so I wasn't entirely comfortable how to, how to address that, so I kind of just glossed over it and focused more on VJ Day, which stands out in the mind of my grandparents, because they, they never really talked about the bomb. They talked about dancing in the streets on VJ Day and hearing, just knowing, because the church bells are ringing and car horns are ringing and everyone went outside to celebrate, and that was, that was more of a a visceral response uh, as a community, as a collective, than a reaction to the bomb. But I just, I just wasn't sure. And I'm not sure if I'm right or wrong on that, honestly. But that's a totally salient question. This question asker wonders if Ford ever visited the hotel basement with someone of Japanese ancestry that might have a unique perspective on the space. I didn't. Um, Jan Johnson, the owner, is really protective of that. She actually doesn't, when she takes people on tours, she doesn't take them into the basement. She takes them into the Sinto, which is a Japanese bathhouse, which is beneath the hotel as well, and, there's, and that's really interesting. Um, so I'm one of the few people that she took. Now there's been historians, um, but, I, but I didn't. Um, I met Mr. Hori, who was the owner of the hotel before Jan. I had met him several times and talked to him about the stuff in the basement, but not while we were down there together. Um, but that would be a unique perspective. Jan's really, to her credit and detriment, she's, she's super protective. Um, 
she's super gregarious. She likes to talk. But when she found all these items in the 80s, when she bought the hotel, and she contacted historians at the University of Washington, and they contacted people on a national level, they all wanted to take everything out. And she said, this is someone's stuff. They might want it back. And also she saw the, just the power of leaving it in context. Like if you took everything out, put it in the basement of a museum and put a few items on display, it's detached from the reality of what happened. And she thought it was much more profound that the hotel be a living museum. And I think she was right. But at the time she really got beat up by the historical community. And so she's just, she was just very skittish for a number of years, which was why she was skittish to talk to me initially. This question is about what Ford's process was like when writing this book. I had written lots of stuff, unpublished, but I really, once my dad passed away, my, my dad was Chinese, I felt disconnected from my Chinese heritage. And then once you lose a parent, you can't, that door's closed, you can't ask those questions that I should have asked as a teenager. But I was too self-absorbed with my own world to ask like, what was your life like when you were 13? Um, and I didn't ask enough of those questions. I asked some, enough that I was curious. And so I started researching his childhood and I was recreating Seattle in the 40s. And I went to a writer's workshop in 2006 in Virginia. And the guy that ran the workshop is a prolific author. He had written all these different types of books, science fiction and fantasy and uh, contemporary, won lots of awards, was a New York Times bestseller. But he said, there's the one thing I've always wanted to write and I've never been able to pull it off. It's, it's this notion of a noble romantic tragedy. And I was just like, I'm made for that. That's like everything I'm about. And so I really wanted to write a love story. And so that's when I wrote a very short story with, between a, a, a Chinese boy and a Japanese girl during World War II. And I later workshopped that at Squaw Valley at a writer's conference, and I met with an editor who, he really liked it. And he said, and he literally said, if I were you, I would quit my job and write this book now. And I'm like, have another glass of wine, dude, because I'm not quitting my job yet. <laughs> but um, it, that kind of encouragement was very validating. So I went home and I, I continued to do the research, and then I just took off with the story. And I did a ton of research. So I did several months of research before I wrote beyond the short story. But once I started, I almost had a complete first draft. And then I went back to Seattle and did more research. And then I finished the book. Um, so that was kind of like a back and forth process. But what I've done with, with Songs of Willow Frost, with, with the new book this fall, I tend to research for about six months and I rebuild that world until I know exactly what's going on, on what date, and what, was, what were, what were the, the weird things going on as far as technology and politics and religion. And um, I, I want to recreate the landscape. And I get so much packed into my brain that I need to start writing, otherwise my brain's going to explode. And then I just start writing, and then I just go crazy. I write every, every day. Um, and even if I write just a little bit on Saturday and Sunday, just to stay present in the story, and I just, it's like a diesel engine. Once you get it going, you just let her run until I get that draft. This audience member wonders if writing this book brought Jamie Ford closer to his father. Yeah, you know, my, my dad and I, we, we, 
we didn't always have a perfect relationship, you know, um, as is echoed in the book a little bit. Because I didn't set out, I, I set out to write a noble romantic tragedy. I didn't set out to write a father and son story. But that just started to manifest. And I knew where it was coming from, so I just let it, let it go. Um, but it did help me kind of reconcile and appreciate my dad. My dad wore an I Am Chinese button, and he told me about that. And I didn't quite believe him until I was doing research, and I saw that lots of people wore those. I'm like, oh, my dad's crazy stories were true. And then I looked at his stories with new eyes, and that was very deeply satisfying. Um, yeah, it was, it was, um, it, it kind of put to rest a lot of just my own angst about it. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Ford decided the ending for his book when it could have easily gone in a different direction. The book is, it's, I say noble romantic tragedy, but it does end on a redemptive note. And I like redemption. I like that. And it's, it's almost like a literary trope where you could write a book and you're not considered a serious literary writer unless you just like crush everybody and end the most unhappy way imaginable. And I didn't, that's not, I'm just not, that's not what I like to read. And that's not to say that it ends with rainbows and unicorns. It's not that either. But I like redemption. And that's what I strive for. And I knew I wanted to end on that redemptive note. Um, also, at the end of a book or a movie, I like books and movies where the end is the beginning of a new chapter. And I think the books, I, I write with that purpose, that intent. At the end of Casablanca, a new story is beginning for Rick and Ilsa, and you can imagine them together or never together, but there's another story after Casablanca. And I, I, I like that decorum, um, and so that's where I was, was going with it. Um, the last thing I should say um, is I do have a new book coming out in September, and in addition to, to Songs of Willow Frost, which is over there, which, which I like. I, the one thing I'll say about Songs of Willow Frost is Hotel was a meteoric bestseller. And Songs of Willow Frost was a New York Times bestseller, but it you know, wasn't on the bestseller list for two years straight. So I didn't know how to feel. Here, I'm going to borrow this for a second, use it as a visual aid. I didn't know how to feel about this book because the metrics didn't measure up. But I, I poured my heart and soul into it, and my wife really loved it. And I don't, authors don't, we don't read our own stuff later. You know, we, we're just too busy writing or reading for pleasure or research. But I really didn't know how to feel about this book. And last summer, I was on a plane to Alaska, and I thought, I haven't given this book a, another shake. I'm going to read this book. And so I downloaded it to my tablet, and I read it. It's a really good book. <laughs> I, was, I was shocked. It was, it was so much better than I imagined. So um, the last thing I'll say is, is the new book in September, it's called Love and Other Consolation Prizes, another historical fiction tale set in Seattle. It's based on the story of a boy who was raffled off at the 1909 World's Fair. They raffled off a child. His name was Ernest. No one knows whatever happened to him. He was donated by the Washington Children's Receiving Home. That's all we know. And so I've sort of made up his life story between that first World's Fair in 1909 and the 62 World's Fair, which is the Space Needle World's Fair. It's another complicated, multicultural family story with, with a 
aspects of tragedy and redemption. So that's all I'm going to say about it. But it's it's out there, um, and it it uh, someone said that they just put put the information in so it can be pre-ordered at the library here, and it comes out in a few months. So thank you so much for having me. I'll sign books and chat. And thank you. That wraps up our Scott County Library Prior Lake event with Jamie Ford. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Pam Jenoff at Dakota County Library, Galaxy, on Thursday, March 30th. Pam Jenoff is the author behind The Commandant's Girl, one of the past decade's best-received works of historical romance, and half a dozen other novels set against the backdrop of war-torn Europe. Her newest, The Orphan's Tale, debuted in February. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.